Section 48 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Glenn Scheidler. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1A, Section 48, Chapter 60, Part 1. Chapter 60. The Commonwealth. Contemporary Monarchs. Emperor of Germany, Ferdinand III, 1658. King of France, Louis XIII. King of Spain, Philip IV. The confusions which overspread England after the murder of Charles I proceeded as well from the spirit of refinement and innovation which agitated the ruling party as from the dissolution of all that authority, both civil and ecclesiastical, by which the nation had ever been accustomed to being governed. Every man had framed the model of a republic, and, however new it was, or fantastical, he was eager in recommending it to his fellow citizens, or even imposing it by force upon them. Every man had adjusted a system of religion, which, being derived from no traditional authority, was peculiar to himself, and being founded on supposed inspiration, not on any principles of human reason, had no means, besides cant and low rhetoric, by which it could be recommended itself to others. The Lavellers insisted on an equal distribution of power and property, and disclaimed all dependence and subordination. A considerable party declaimed against tithes and a hireling priesthood, and were resolved that the magistrate should not support by power or revenue any ecclesiastic establishment. Another party inveighed against the law and its professors, and on pretense of rendering more simple the distribution of justice, were desirous of abolishing the whole system of English jurisprudence, which seemed interwoven with the monarchical government. Even those among the republicans who adopted not such extravagancies were so intoxicated with their saintly character that they supposed themselves possessed of peculiar privileges, and all professions, oaths, laws, and engagements had in a great measure, lost their influence over them. The bands of society were everywhere loosened, and the irregular passions of men were encouraged by speculative principles still more unsocial and irregular. The royalists, consisting of the nobles and more considerable gentry, being degraded from their authority and plundered of their property, were inflamed with the highest resentment and indignation against those ignoble adversaries who had reduced them to subjection. The Presbyterians, whose credit had first supported the arms of the Parliament, were enraged to find that, by the treachery or superior cunning of then associates, the fruits of all their successful labors were ravished from them. The former party, from inclination and principle, zealously attached themselves to the son of their unfortunate monarch, whose memory they respected, and whose tragical death they deplored. The latter cast their eyes towards the same object, but they still had many prejudices to overcome, many fears and jealousies to be allayed, ere, 
they could cordially entertain the thoughts of restoring the family which they had so grievously offended, and whose principles they regarded with such violent abhorrence. The only solid support of the Republican independent faction, which, though it formed so small a part of the nation, had violently usurped the government of the whole, was a numerous army of near 50,000 men. But this army, formidable from its discipline and courage, as well as its numbers, was actuated by a spirit that rendered it dangerous to the assembly, which had assumed the command over it. Accustomed to indulge every chimera in politics, every frenzy in religion, the soldiers knew little of the subordination of citizens, and had only learned from apparent necessity some maxims of military obedience. And while they still maintained that all these enormous violations of law and equity, of which they had been guilty, were justified by the success which Providence had blessed them, they were ready to break out into any new disorder, wherever they had the prospect of a like sanction and authority. What alone gave some stability to all these unsettled humors was the great influence, both civil and military, acquired by Oliver Cromwell. This man, suited to the age in which he lived, and to that alone, was equally qualified to gain the affection and confidence of men, by what was mean, vulgar, and ridiculous in his character, as to command their obedience by what was great, daring, and enterprising. Familiar even to buffoonery with the meanest sentinel, he never lost his authority. Transported to a degree of madness with religious ecstasies, he never forgot the political purpose to which they might serve. Hating monarchy while a subject, despising liberty while a citizen, though he retained for a time all orders of men under a seeming obedience to the parliament, he was secretly paving the way, by artifice and courage, to his own unlimited authority. The Parliament, for so we must henceforth call a small and inconsiderable part of the House of Commons, having murdered their sovereign with so many appearing circumstances of solemnity and justice, and so much real violence, and even fury, began to assume more the air of a civil legal power, and to enlarge a little the narrow bottom upon which they stood. They admitted a few of the excluded and absent members, such as were liable to least exception, but on condition that these members should sign an appropriation of what had been done in their absence with regard to the king's trial, and some of them were willing to acquire a share of power on such terms. The greater part disdained to lend their authority to such apparent usurpations. They issued some writs for new elections in places where they had hoped to have enough interest to bring their own friends and dependents. They named a council of state, thirty-eight in number, to whom all addresses were made, who gave orders to all generals and admirals, who executed the laws, and who digested all business before it was introduced into the parliament. They pretended to employ themselves entirely in adjusting the laws, forms, and plans of a new representative, and as soon as they should have settled the nation, they professed their intention of restoring the power to the people, from whom they acknowledged they had entirely derived it. The Commonwealth found everything in England composed into a seeming tranquility by the terror of their arms. Foreign powers, occupied in war among themselves, 
had no leisure or inclination to interpose into the domestic dissensions of this island. The young king, poor and neglected, living sometimes in Holland, sometimes in France, sometimes in Jersey, comforted himself amidst his present distresses with the hopes of a better fortune. The situation alone of Scotland and Ireland gave any immediate inquietude to the new republic. After the successive defeats of Montrose and Hamilton, the ruin of their parties, the whole authority in Scotland, fell into the hands of Argyle and the rigid churchmen, that party which was most averse to the interests of the royal family. Their enmity, however, against the independents, who had prevented the settlement of Presbyterian discipline in England, carried them to embrace opposite maxims in their political conduct. Though invited by the English Parliament to model their government into a republican form, they resolved still to adhere to monarchy, which had ever prevailed in their country, and which, by the expressed terms of their covenant, they had engaged to defend. They considered, besides, that as property of the kingdom lay mostly in the hands of great families, it would be difficult to establish a commonwealth, or, with some chief magistrate invested with royal authority, to preserve peace or justice in the community. The execution, therefore, of the king against which they had always protested, having occasioned a vacancy of the throne, they immediately proclaimed his son and successor, Charles II, but upon condition of his good behavior and strict observance of the covenant, and his entertaining no other person about him but such as were godly men and faithful to that obligation. These unusual clauses, inserted in the very first acknowledgment of their prince, sufficiently showed their intention of limiting extremely his authority. And the English commonwealth, having no pretense to interpose into the affairs of that kingdom, allowed the Scots, for the present, to take their own measures in settling their government. The dominion which England claimed over Ireland demanded more immediately their efforts for subduing that country. In order to convey a just notion of Irish affairs, it will be necessary to look backwards some years, and to relate briefly those transactions which had passed during the memorable revolutions in England, when the late king agreed to that secession of arms with the Polish rebels, which has become so requisite, as well for the security of the Irish Protestants as for promoting his interest in England. The Parliament, in order to blacken his conduct, reproached him with favoring that odious rebellion, and exclaimed loudly against the terms of the secession. They even went so far as to declare it entirely null and invalid, because finished without their consent. And in this declaration, the Scots in Ulster, and the Earl of Injaquin, a nobleman of great authority in Munster, professed to adhere. By their means, the war was still kept alive. But as the dangerous distractions in England hindered the Parliament from sending any considerable assistance to their allies in Ireland, the Marquis of Ormond, Lord Lieutenant, being a native of Ireland, and a person endowed with great prudence and virtue, formed a scheme for composing the disorders of his country, and for engaging the rebel Irish to support the cause of his royal master. There were many circumstances which strongly invited the natives of Ireland to embrace the king's party. The maxims of that prince had always led him to give a reasonable indulgence to the Catholics throughout all his dominion, 
and one principal ground of that enmity which the puritans professed against him was this tacit toleration the parliament on the contrary even when unprovoked had ever menaced the papists with the most rigid restraint if not a total extirpation and immediately after the commencement of the irish rebellion they put to sale all the estates of the rebels and had engaged in the public faith for transferring them to the adventurers who had already advanced money upon that security the success therefore which the arms of the parliament met with at naseby struck a just terror into the irish and engaged the council of kilkenny composed of deputies from all the catholic countries and cities to conclude a peace with the marquis of ormond they professed to return their duty and allegiance engaged to furnish ten thousand men for the support of the king's authority in england and were content with stipulating in return indemnity for their rebellion and toleration for their religion ormond not doubting that a peace so advantageous and even necessary to the irish would be strictly observed advanced with a small body of troops to kilkenny in order to concert measures for common defence with his new allies the pope had sent over to ireland a nuncio Rinicini, an italian and this man whose commission empowered him to direct the spiritual concerns of the irish was emboldened by their ignorance and bigotry to assume the chief authority in the civil government foreseeing that a general submission to the lord lieutenant would put an end to his own influence he conspired with owen o'neill who commanded the native irish in ulster and who bore great jealousy to preston the general chiefly trusted by the council of kilkenny by concert these two malcontents secretly drew forces together and were ready to fall on ormond who remained in security trusting to the pacification so lately concluded with the rebels he received intelligence of their treachery made his retreat with celerity and conduct and sheltered his small army in dublin and the other fortified towns which still remained in the hands of the protestants the nuncio full of arrogance levity and ambition was not contented with this violation of treaty he summoned an assembly of the clergy at waterford and engaged them to declare against that pacification which the civil council had concluded with their sovereign he even thundered out a sentence of excommunication against all who should adhere to a peace so prejudicial as he pretended to the catholic religion and the deluded irish terrified with his spiritual menaces ranged themselves everywhere on his side and submitted to his authority without scruple he carried on a war against the lord lieutenant and threatened with a siege the protestant garrisons which were all of them very ill provided for defence meanwhile the unfortunate king was necessitated to take shelter in the scottish army and being there reduced to close confinement and secluded from all commerce with his friends despaired that his authority or even his liberty would ever be restored to him he sent orders to ormond if he could not defend himself rather to submit to the english than to the irish people and accordingly the lord lieutenant being reduced to extremities delivered up dublin treda dundalk and other garrisons to colonel michael jones who took possession of them in the name of the english parliament ormond himself went to england was admitted into the king's presence received a grateful acknowledgment for his past services and during some time lived in tranquillity near london but being banished with the other royalists to a distance from that city 
and seeing every event turn out unfortunately for his royal master and threaten him with a catastrophe still more direful he thought proper to retire into france where he joined the queen and the prince of wales in ireland during these transactions the authority of the nuncio prevailed without control among all the catholics and that prelate by his indiscretion and insolence soon made them repent of the power which they had entrusted him prudent men likewise were sensible of the total destruction which was hanging over the nation from the english parliament and saw no resource or safety but in giving support to the declining authority of the king the earl of clanricard a nobleman of an ancient family a person too of merit who had ever preserved his loyalty was sensible of the ruin which threatened his countrymen and was resolved if possible to prevent it he secretly formed a combination among the catholics he entered into a correspondence with the inchiquin who preserved great authority over the protestants in munster he attacked the nuncio whom he chased out of the island and he sent to paris a deputation inviting the lord lieutenant to return and take possession of his government ormond on his arrival in ireland found the kingdom divided into many factions among which either open war or secret enmity prevailed the authority of the english parliament was established in dublin and the other towns which he himself had delivered into their hands o'neill maintained his credit in ulster and having entered into a secret correspondence with the parliamentary generals was more intent on schemes for his own personal safety than anxious for the preservation of his country or religion the irish divided between their clergy who were averse to ormond and their nobility who were attached to him were very uncertain in their emotions and feeble in their measures the scots in the north enraged as well as their other countrymen against the usurpations of the sectarian army professed their adherence to the king but were still hindered by many prejudices from entering into a cordial union with his lieutenant all these distracted counsels and contrary humours checked the progress of ormond and enabled the parliamentary forces in ireland to maintain their ground against him the republican faction meanwhile in england employed in subduing the revolted royalists in reducing the parliament to subjection in the trial condemnation and execution of their sovereign totally neglected the supplying of ireland and allowing jones and the forces in dublin to remain in the utmost weakness and necessity the lord lieutenant though surrounded with difficulties neglected not the favourable opportunity of promoting the royal cause having at last assembled an army of sixteen thousand men he advanced upon the parliamentary garrisons dundalk where the monk commanded was delivered up by the troops who mutinied against their governor Treda, nuri and other forts were taken dublin was threatened with a siege and the affairs of the lieutenant appeared in so prosperous a condition that the young king entertained the thoughts of coming in person into ireland when the english commonwealth was brought to some tolerable settlement men began to cast their eyes toward the neighboring island during the contest of two parties the government of ireland had remained a great object of intrigue and the presbyterians endeavored to obtain the lieutenancy for waller the independence for lambert after the execution of the king cromwell himself began to aspire to a command where so much glory he saw might be won and so much authority acquired in his absence he took care to have his name proposed to the council of the state and both friends and enemies concurred immediately to vote him into that important office the former suspected 
that the matter had not been proposed merely by chance without his own concurrence and the latter desired to remove him to a distance and hoped during his absence to gain the ascendant over fairfax whom he had so long blinded by his hypocritical professions cromwell himself when informed of his election feigned surprise and pretended at first to hesitate with regard to the acceptance of the command and lambert either deceived by his dissimulation or in his turn feigning to be deceived still continued notwithstanding this disappointment his friendship and connections with cromwell the new lieutenant immediately applied himself with his wonted vigilance to make preparations for his expedition many disorders in england it behoved him previously to compose all places were full of danger and inquietude though men astonished with the successes of the army remained in seeming tranquillity symptoms of the greatest discontent everywhere appeared the english long accustomed to a mild administration and unacquainted with dissimulation could not conform their speech and countenance to the present necessity or pretend attachment to a form of government which they generally regarded with such violent abhorrence it was a requisite to change the magistracy of london and to degrade or punish the mayor and some of the aldermen before the proclamation for the abolition of monarchy could be published in the city an engagement being framed to support the commonwealth without king or house of peers the army was with some difficulty brought to subscribe it but though it was not imposed upon the rest of the nation under severe penalties no less than putting all who refused out of the protection of law such obstinate reluctance was observed in the people that even the imperious parliament was obliged to desist from it the spirit of fanaticism by which that assembly had first been strongly supported was now turned in a great measure against them the pulpits being chiefly filled with presbyterians or disguised royalists and having long been the scene of news and politics could by no penalties be restrained from declarations unfavorable to the established government numberless were the extravagancies which broke out among the people everard a disbanded soldier having preached that the time has now come when the community of goods would be renewed among christians let out his followers to take possession of the land and being carried before the general he refused to salute him because he was but his fellow-creature what seemed more dangerous the army itself was infected with like humors end of section forty eight chapter sixty part one recording by glenn Shidler, randolph new jersey